I invite you to take your Bible and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. This morning, we arrive at a text in James having to do with the subject of prayer. Prayer is a universal practice widely conducted by the great majority of the world's population. Probably because every major world religion views prayer as one of its primary and central tenets. In Islam, for example, one of their five pillars is prayer. Committed Muslims are expected to ritualistically pray five times per day. In Orthodox, in Orthodox Judaism, faithful adherents recite countless prayers. There's a prayer to be cited after one gets out of bed, before eating, before wearing new clothes, before washing hands or lighting candles. There's a prayer to be recited upon seeing anything unusual, like a rainbow. There are prayers to recite whenever some good or bad thing happens. And of course, there's a prayer to be recited before going to bed at night. From sunup until sundown, there's a prayer written for you to pray if you're an Orthodox, Orthodox Jew. What about the Eastern religions, like Buddhism and Hinduism? In the former, prayer is synonymously thought of as meditation, which has self-change or self-actualization as its object. The most popular Hindu, Mahatma Gandhi, said that, quote, Prayer is the very soul and essence of religion. And therefore, prayer must be the very core of, a, of the life of man. Unquote. Pretty high view of prayer, wouldn't you say? What about the other world religion? Christendom. And what I mean by Christendom is this. Comprising of all worldwide sects, and faith groups that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ in their own liturgical way. Like Roman Catholicism and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Those two sects bind its followers to a conglomeration of canned, prepackaged, extra-biblical prayers to be recited at the proper time. And not only... Could we say that prayer is a central tenet of all religions? Have you ever heard the saying, there's no atheist in a foxhole? I've been in combat before. And there's a lot of truth in that saying. You can find countless testimonies of unbelievers who are on the brink of death, crying out to their maker for salvation. In fact, that's how John Newton the writer of the most famous hymn ever penned, Amazing Grace, was saved. Remember that story? He's in the middle of a really violent storm in the middle of the ocean, and all of a sudden he cries out to God. And he ends up being one of the most effective instruments in the hands of God. And so my question to you this morning is this. In a fallen world, 
where literally everyone has a viewpoint or an opinion about prayer, what's your standard for deciding what true prayer is? Well, I hope you'd answer James 5. James 5 shed some clarity with regard to when and how to pray. And as Bible-believing Christians, this is how we must see prayer. The Bible does not prescribe reciting a pre-packaged prayer five times a day or even once a day. The Bible does not command us to pray before and after every simple mundane task. How would you like that burden? Every time you wash your hands, you've got to stop and say a prepackaged prayer. The Bible does not even imply in the slightest that we should meditate on self. And in fact, this is the very opposite. We should deny self. And the Bible most assuredly does not demand we take a string of beads and echo the same words over and over and over again in hopes of earning points with God. But the Bible does, in James 5, 13 to 18, list five seasons of life that call for earnest, true prayer to God. Knowing what prayer is, And when you should pray will help you cultivate a deeper relationship with your God. Today, we're going to spend most of our time talking about what prayer is. And in two weeks from now, we'll focus on the seasons. But today, I think it's very important for us as a church body to be on the same page with regard to the nature of prayer. We would all agree that healthy personal relationships must involve constant appropriate communication, right? If you're if you're married, communication is kind of a big deal, right? Well, the same principle applies to your walk with God. The more you read his word, the deeper you know him, and the deeper you know him, the deeper you can love him. You can't love something you don't know. Likewise, the more you pray to him, the healthier your relationship with him will be. We are called to pray without ceasing. And that's a well-known, simple command. We've all heard that before, right? However, if we face the facts, we may know that command. And perhaps we might even remind each other of it, which is good. But seldom do we pray without ceasing in certain seasons of life. So God has provided more instruction detailed instruction with regard to one's personal and corporate prayer life. And by corporate, if I've never explained that before and you've always wondered what I mean. I mean simply like together, like togetherness, the group, the local church together. That's what I mean by corporate prayer, corporate scripture reading, corporate assembly. It's coming together to do something spiritually significant. But before, like I said, we dive into these five seasons, I want to fast forward a little bit and kind of camp out on that second phrase in verse 13 of James 5. Let's read that. James says in 5.13, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Then he must pray. I want to focus on that 
for a few minutes. When we read that, James assumes that his readers have a good theology of prayer. But I can't assume that right now. Because I haven't, I haven't had the opportunity to hear everyone's understanding or view of prayer. So please listen as I give a very brief lesson on the work of prayer. Before we talk about what true biblical prayer is, I need to qualify or clarify what prayer is not. So if you'd like to take notes, this is a good thing to jot down. First of all, prayer is not a religious, religious ritual. Prayer is not a religious ritual. Prayer was never intended by God to evolve into mindless repetition. Never. Jesus commanded in Matthew 6. He said, and when you are praying, listen, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. And then Jesus commands clearly in verse 8. Do not be like them. Do not be like them. So, brothers and sisters, if you find yourself praying the same prayer every time you pray, then you need to deepen your understanding of the nature and purpose of prayer. And you know how to do that? Study the prayers in Scripture. And model your prayers after them. Because the truth is you can always discern, at least in part, the level of maturity of a professing believer by hearing how he or she prays. At the same time. At the same time, however, second clarification, prayer is is not a dramatic performance. First, it's not a religious ritual. Second, it's not a dramatic performance. I can't tell you how many times I've had my public prayers evaluated by both professing believers and non-believers. Our prayers must never be thought of as an eloquent display of one's public speaking ability or some kind of theatrical exercise to impress an audience. I remember not long after my conversion to Christ, one Sunday I went to go visit a small little country brethren church, a congregation of about 10 or 15 people. And if you know anything about brethren churches, their style is nothing like what you would see in a mainstream Protestant service or even a conservative non-denominational church like this. I remember the church service was very long. I'm talking like four hours, you know, so if you think our hour and a half service is long, then it's not. One part of the experience I vividly remember in particular was the time set aside for prayer. When it came time for a corporate prayer, it didn't entail one pastor or elder getting up behind the pulpit and leading the congregation in a pastoral prayer. Their practice involved everyone standing up, and then the men of the congregation would take turns praying as they felt led. 
Now, I didn't know I was in for a spectacular show. One man, in particular, prayed a very lengthy prayer, and it was more full of unction, fervor, passion, inflection, authority, and sheer volume than most sermons I've ever heard. I mean, it was that over the top. It was as if that brother was competing for the Oscars or something. It was that amazing. It was that dramatic and so sensational that it was distracting. And as a new convert, I mean, it was seriously a bit of a turnoff. Now, I don't know what was in that man's heart. I don't know what his motive was. But what was being manifested was a performance-like event rather than a solemn corporate prayer. Again, Matthew 6, Jesus said, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that what? They could be seen by men. So perhaps as as an encouragement to, to you who may struggle with the fear of man when you have the opportunity to lead a prayer, in a group. Don't worry about what other people think about the brevity, simplicity, and sobriety of your prayer. Don't worry about that. You know, as, as, as a chaplain and as a pastor, uh, I'm almost always called on to pray every time there's a public gathering. That's awesome. That's good. That's what I signed up for. And I'll confess to you, I mean, it took me a while to get used to it. Because because I wanted to, I wanted people to, to think, okay, that guy knows how to pray. And I, and I would get discouraged if I thought that, you know, I kind of messed it up. But I don't think like that anymore. You know why? Because when I'm praying, I am talking to God. I'm not talking to anyone else. And so when you pray in front of a group, whether it's you and another person or you and a large group, don't care what other people think. Care what God thinks. Assuming your prayer is in accordance with God's word. Only caveat. Which brings me to my third clarification about what prayer is not. This is important. Prayer is not a means to ask God for worldly wants and physical pleasures. Let me say that again. Prayer is not a means to ask God for worldly wants and physical pleasures. In other words, we must be extremely cautious that we do not treat God as our personal genie or some sort of cosmic Santa Claus rewarding those who behave. We see frequently in pop culture a prayer like this. Oh, God, if you grant me this thing, I will dedicate my life to you and I won't sin anymore. Or if God, if it is your will, if we throw that in there, it might automatically qualify as a good prayer, right? If it's your will, well, not necessarily. God, if it is your will, I pray for you to open the door to do this. I pray for you to open the door to fill in the blank. 
financial success. This boyfriend, this girlfriend. My house of my dreams, my popularity, or whatever temporal comfort or enjoyment this life may have to offer. That's not what prayer is for. Whatever the case may be, if your prayers have even a hint of selfishness in them, you need to change your view of prayer. There's plenty of praying going on that doesn't recognize the basic biblical divine standards. True prayer is not a religious ritual. It's not a dramatic performance. And by no means is it a means to ask God for worldly things. Now that I've explained what true prayer is not, more could be said about that, but I've got to move on. Listen to what true prayer is. The word translated pray is from a Greek compound word, literally means toward to speak out. So the idea is simply to talk to someone. In the present context, when God is the receiver of the speaking out, the word implies communication with God. That's it. Implication, there's no posture. You don't need a rosary. You don't need to be in a temple. You don't need to be any specific location. You don't have to say a magical word. You're just talking to God. But what does that imply? Not only does James assume you have a good theology of prayer, James also assumes that you're saved. That you know God. You actually know God. How do you come to God? Through faith alone in Jesus Christ. We just read it, Romans 4. The Bible teaches that all men are sinners and they continually fall short of God's glory. It's not that they have fallen. It's they continually, continually, ongoing fall all the time. And so by nature, we don't know him. Because our sin separates us from God. By nature, we are not in relationship with him. We are his adversaries. So, we need to examine ourselves to see if we are really in the faith. We need to examine ourselves often to make sure that we and our conscience know for certain we have been reconciled with him through Jesus alone. Because God's word says that the one who doubts receives nothing from the Lord. James 1. And the Lord does not listen to the idolater. Jeremiah 11. And so prayer is simply speaking out towards God. Assuming that you actually have a relationship with him. Now how do we do that? Now that we know what prayer is and what it isn't, how do we do it? Or in what manner do we approach God? Well, in addition to the three clarifications I gave you having to do with what prayer is not, just take these very brief principles to heart with regard to prayer. Pray with a desire to bring glory to Jesus, number one. That is the chief and most important principle that you need to maintain in your prayer life. 
Pray with a desire to bring glory to Jesus. John fourteen thirteen. Jesus himself said, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. Usually we just stop there, right? Jesus says, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Bring glory to the Father. If your prayer will not bring glory to the Father, don't pray it. Secondly, pray with a heart of gratitude. Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. That's another part we leave out of that verse, right? Let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving, key qualifier. If your prayers do not involve thanksgiving, don't pray it. Third, pray with a spirit of humility. Humility. Low-mindedness is the literal way to say it. Our chief example, Jesus Christ again, prayed to the Father in the garden, yet not my will but yours be done. That's humility. So, there is much more I could say about prayer in general. But if you have a desire to glorify Christ and not yourself, if you pray with a heart of gratitude and not discontentment, and if you pray with humility and not pride, then you're praying true prayers. Start with that. So we've discussed what prayer is and how to do it. Now let's see... What seasons of life dictate earnest prayer to God? This is the when to pray. First, you must pray to God when you're suffering. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? The word can mean to suffer evil affliction or endure hardship. And it does not necessarily have anything at all to do with physical suffering. So let me just get that out there right now. It's not about physical suffering. But what, So what kind of suffering does James mean? Well, in order to answer the question properly, we need to consider the original audience. And then the context, right? Remember, Jesus, James's recipients were Jewish believers. Who had been forced to flee Palestine. And so, by persecution, they faced hostility from the pagan culture they lived in. Acts 8, verse 1 records this. It says, on that day, a great persecution. Persecution just means hostile pursuit. A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, diaspora, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So that, that's, that's what James is writing to, remember? You also recall that in James chapter 1, the letter opened with a rather lengthy exhortation to patiently endure trials, and in chapter 5, he returns to the same theme. What trials? The persecution. Not disease. Not handicap. 
where they weren't struggling with that it was the spiritual persecution. So, when you consider the historical context and the flow of thought in the whole letter, another word for context, James is speaking of the kind of suffering one would experience while being religiously persecuted. That's the suffering Verse 13. Now, what is a Christian supposed to do when he or she is being pursued in a hostile manner? Fight? (laughs) Fight spiritually. Verse 13. He must pray. He must pray. This means that when you're in a season of affliction... It is wrong not to pray. A prayerless person is a rebellious person. Talking to God in the right way is essential when enduring affliction. We must note that it's not surprising that in a letter addressed to a group of people who were being persecuted... Not only that, but they were experiencing internal strife... Remember James 4. It's not surprising they would need to be told to pray because it's in times of struggling that believers neglect prayer, don't we? It's easy to pray when things are going well. But it's hard to stop and pray with desire to glorify Him, with a heart of gratitude and with a spirit of humility when things aren't going our way, isn't it? By nature, we want to complain. We want to wallow in self-pity. We want to think that the grass is green on the other side. We want to react, retaliate. But James just says pray. It's hard. But just because something's hard does not relieve us of the responsibility, does it? The tense of this verb suggests continual pleading with God in prayer. So it could be rendered as, he must keep on praying. You know what that means? Prayer is not a dead ritual. It's not something that you do once and check the block. It's a habit. It's a continual practice. Believers need to go to God in prayer because it's a command. But don't just see this as a command. See this as an admonishment from your loving Father because you benefit from it. Prayer is the means by which God provides comfort to your soul. While Jonah was in the stomach of the fish, he prayed... While I was wait, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Knowing that God was listening to Jonah inside the whale helped him to get spit out and survive. Second Corinthians one, Paul says that the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. So God's 
means of comforting us in our affliction is communication with Him. So it's clear that prayer benefits the believer. It should not be a burden. It should be something that we love. It's something we should do all the time in a season of suffering. Secondly, when you're in a season of cheerfulness, pray when you're cheerful. Second half of verse 13, he says, Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Now this word cheerful, it describes those who are well in spirit and joyful in attitude. Again, the context drives us to not interpret this passage in light of physical circumstances. So James is not referring to people who are physically healthy. Acts 27 verse 22, the same word is not, is, um, is not actually translated cheerful. It says, yet now I urge you, keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Context, the shipwreck at the end of Paul's journey to Rome. And so those men who were being told to keep their courage, even though I'm sure they felt a little disoriented in, a, in the midst of a violent storm, but I'd venture to surmise that the men on that ship weren't being told to take courage with regard to the physical discomforts. They weren't, I guarantee you, they weren't thinking about the common cold they might have had. Even if they had a disease, they probably weren't thinking of that. They were thinking of staying alive on the ship. Which means they were probably the opposite of cheerful and courageous. So Paul told them, to be courageous. All this, is to, all this is to demonstrate is that James is not referring to a believer who is joyful for physical reasons, but for spiritual reasons. Previously, we were told that the broken, persecuted soul must pray, and evidently, so must those who are whole and rejoicing. One former pleads for comfort. The latter sings praises for comfort given. What does this mean, sing praises? Or if, if you're a music person, this might interest you. And if you're not, it still should interest you because if you're a Christian, you like music. Literally, the word means to touch lightly, to twang, or snap. This verb is from, from, uh, from which we, we get the noun psalm. It literally means to pluck or to snap. And it came to signify the making of music in any fashion, with or without music, or instruments, excuse me. But given the context, it does have a spiritual connotation, doesn't it? It obviously refers to making music or, the English translation, singing praises to God. Now, why is praise and prayer so closely related? Because when we sing praises or sing music or play music, what are we doing? Or perhaps I should say, what should we be doing? Should we be 
singing for our own sake? Should we be singing for others' sake? No. We sing praises to God for his sake. So in prayer, we communicate with God. And in singing, we also communicate with God. In fact, praise is actually just another form of prayer. That's why our music must be true and holy and reverent and biblical. Any kind of Christian music, no matter the style, should not center on man, nor should it magnify man. Rather, all Christian music, whether it's traditional or contemporary, should center on God and magnify God's person. Because we are communicating with God and are singing. In corporate worship, the point of our singing is not primarily to make people feel good. The secondary effect of it may be edification, and that's well and good. But its main purpose and goal is to sing praises to God for who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. Just like in our prayers, the praises we sing must be done with the right heart. Heart of thanksgiving. The right spirit. A spirit of low-mindedness. And above all, the praises we sing must be done with the right motive, which is to put God's person on display. In other words, make God look big and people look small. Therefore, any form of music, any song that focuses on man with the goal of simply stirring up our emotions has no place in your life. Whether it's during corporate worship, on the Lord's Day, or if you're in the car or at your home or whatever, Because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. If you listen to unbiblical Christian music, which is an oxymoron, right? If you listen to that music all the time, guess what? You'll start singing. You'll fill your mind with error. And what comes out of your mouth will be error. And who wants to sing falsehood to God? So it should go without saying. Be very discerning about what you hear on Christian radio. It is crazy that Christians will find something in a sermon or in a teaching and get nitpicky about one sentence. But will go home and put on contemporary Christian positive K-love on, on the radio at home and listen to it all day. And not have one disagreement. It's shocking how Christians tend to divorce the music with the teaching and preaching they hear. But it happens. Just because a contemporary Christian songwriter uses the words love and Jesus does not mean it's distinctly Christian. So when you sing praises, be sure that you sing truth with a righteous purpose. Those that worship the Father must do so in spirit and truth. 
So when you're in a season of happiness, sing. Now, I can't teach you how to sing. That's Daniel's job. But I can help you with what to sing. And when you're in a season of affliction, pray. Talk out to the God of all comfort who gives comfort. And remember what you learned today about what communication with God is not and what it truly is. What changes do you need to make in your personal prayer life today? Perhaps you need to pray more frequently. Maybe you find yourself only praying when things are difficult. Neglecting the singing of praises when all things are well and good. Or maybe you're the type of person that loves to sing while neglecting ongoing dialogue with God in whatever affliction you face. If I were a betting man, which I'm not, by the way, I'm confident that some of you need to change the heart behind your prayer life and the content of your prayer. To learn more about what to pray, as I've already said, go back and study the prayers in Scripture. The Psalms. The Psalms are just prayers put to music. Psalm 51 comes to mind. Create in me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me. We sing that, don't we? And the secondary source, uh, pick up the Valley of Vision, which is simply a, a record of uh, Puritan prayers. Good way to learn how to pray. And to learn more about what to sing, as I already said, read the Psalms. Also, I remain convinced that we, universally and here locally, need to cultivate a deeper love and appreciation for the sacred hymns. I remain convinced of that. The hymns were not written just so we can sing them once a year at a hymn sing. The hymns were not written so that we can say, oh, yeah, those cool old songs, you know, once had a place in our church life. No. Those hymns were recorded with sound theology for the purpose of enabling you to obey James 5.13. Next time, we'll cover... The other seasons of life that call for earnest prayer to God. You pray with me. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you that you have given us your word to instruct us on how to pray. Father, we desire to glorify you, to put your name on display, to make your name look majestic and big and high. We come to you with gratitude knowing that if not for your grace, we would not even be standing here. We would not have the hope of heaven. We come to you with humility, knowing that we are weak and that we need your strength. We come to you knowing that we 
cannot help but sin. And so we need your forgiveness. I pray for those who are here today that they were edified and, if need be, corrected in the area of prayer. We love you, God, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.